white supremacy isn't just out there. It's, it's, it's everything. It's yeah. the air that we're breathing. It's in me too. It's in you too. Um, and, and so how can we, you know, change that? How can we heal it within ourselves first? Hello and welcome to At the Table with Dr. Alam Murabit. I have never been more excited for a conversation. Leila Said is one of my personal heroes and role models. She's a New York Times bestselling author of the groundbreaking book, Me and White Supremacy, host of the Good Ancestor podcast, and the founder of Good Ancestor Academy. She's an author, speaker, and teacher on the topics of race, identity, leadership, personal transformation, and social change. As you'll hear in our conversation today, she is so passionate about creating inspiration, education, and activation for personal and collective change in the world. Her work is driven by a powerful desire to be a good ancestor herself, to live and work in ways that leave a legacy of healing and liberation, especially for black girls and black women. I'm so glad you're all here to join Leila and I at the table, and I hope this conversation activates and motivates and inspires and educates you as much as it did me. This is At the Table with Dr. Elam Murabit. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I am a UN high-level commissioner on health, employment, and economic growth, one of 17 global UN sustainable development goal advocates. I am also a medical doctor and a women's rights champion and strategist. I have traveled the world and met people who are leaders in their own industries, and I've met people who have completely changed the game, from names that we know to names that we don't. There are people who have championed inclusive security more than anything else. So At The Table is really a collection of in-depth conversations and interviews with leaders in all industries. It's looking at how we create systems and structures and communities and selves that really represent what we need in the world today. Now, it's been called At The Table because I think the single most important thing is for us to create and cultivate spaces. And this one is mine where I invite you to connect with and to learn from and to teach one another about the importance of inclusive leadership and making sure that when you are at any table, you are bringing somebody with you, an idea with you, a perspective with you that isn't already there. So thank you again for joining me. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening and for being here. And please let me know, what does being at the table mean to you? And who are you bringing with you? Leila, it is so wonderful to have you here today. Now, Leila, I reached out to you because I've actually read and done your book. Um, and I've, I've told you it's, it's been terrifyingly um, honest and, and difficult to grapple with and educational in, in such unique ways. And it's, uh, you know, such a kind of an intriguing and, and, I think, compelling way to get people to talk about such sensitive issues. So I'm so excited you're here today. I'm excited we get to take that expertise from those pages and, and to our audience here at the table. Well, I'm very excited to be here. And when I saw the request come in, I was like, I recognize that name. Where do I know that name from? Um, and, you know, just exploring your work and the work that you do, I feel very excited to be here, both as a Muslim woman and as a kind of fellow third culture kid um, who is so passionate about um, changing hearts and changing minds and changing the world. I know this is going to be a really great conversation. Oh, I'm excited. I'm excited you said third culture kid because I try to explain that to people. And I'm like, have you ever been asked where your accent is from? Right. That's, like, <laughs> right. that's, that's the third culture kid question, the first one. 
Right. <laughs> so the first question I really want to ask is, can you give me two words about how you're feeling today in this moment? Mm. Oh, so the two words that I would choose are probably curious and um, purposeful. Um, curious and purposeful, which isn't every day. Um, we, like, we like days like today where we're curious <laughs> and purposeful. Um, and that's because I'm currently researching and writing for the Young Readers edition of my book. And it's proving to be its own entirely kind of separate book project, as well as um, what feels like a very spiritual journey for me at the same time. Um, so, yeah, and that sort of energy of listening, you know, researching, um, connecting different ideas and feeling like what I'm doing is, has a purpose and it, it, there's an intention behind it. And so for those of members of our audience that don't know, can you tell us a little bit about me and white supremacy and how it started? Cause I always think this is an incredible story about how anybody can make, yeah. you know, change can, and can create something powerful. Well, the internet is the great like democratizer in that so many of us have um, access to it and can start conversations and movements with no, with no money behind it. Mm -hmm. um, just our time and our energy and our creativity. Um, Me and White Supremacy, which is now a published book, actually started as an Instagram challenge in the summer of 2018. Um, that was sparked from a, a, a question in my mind the night before um, around what had the people in my community, white people in my community learned about themselves and white supremacy that was making it easier for me to have a conversation with them about white supremacy in a way where they were not getting as upset mm -hmm. and as triggered into white fragility as they had when I first started having the conversation a year prior. Mm -hmm. um, so the question was, what have they learned about themselves and white supremacy? And uh, I was just going to write a quick post, an Instagram post yeah, asking. Yeah, a super chill question. Yeah, like a real quick. what have you learned, right, in this year? What have you learned? Um, and, uh, and, and as I'm writing the post, I asked myself, well, what, what is white supremacy? Um, let me break it down, you know. And I start listing out these different aspects of white supremacy, with things that I had seen and observed and heard about. And suddenly I had this list of all these different ways that white supremacy shows up. And I was like, well, this isn't a single post. This isn't a single question. This is a whole like curriculum, right? This is a whole journey. Um, and so I, I, the post I actually created was, um, hey, uh, come on a 28 day journey with me tomorrow um, where we're going to explore what you have learned about you and white supremacy and your complicity in white supremacy and your relationship with it. Um, you know, join me tomorrow. And then I, I went to sleep. Um, and, I, <laughs> and, I, and I woke up the next morning um, to so many messages of mm. people who have white privilege saying, this sounds really scary, but I'm in. Mm -hmm. um, and so I started day one, what have you learned about you and white privilege? And, you know, explained what the term was, um, explained different ways that it showed up and then had some reflective journal and questions for them and asked them to basically live journal in the comments section of the mm -hmm. post. And we did that over the course of 28 days, um, ex each day exploring a different aspects with some review days in between, 
um, some Instagram live videos to accompany it, some other resources I shared at the same time, other teachers I wanted to highlight, other books I wanted to highlight. And basically over the course of a month, you know, really went deep mm-hmm. into transformation work um, in this community space um, where every day new people were joining the challenge. Um, and so at the end of the 28 days, you know, we'd gone on this incredible journey, which uh, just personally for me was both, again, purposeful, um, but extremely, extremely draining. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, recognize and sort of made a, a, a decision within myself that I would never do anything like that again. Um, but that the actual... <laughs> Right. Yeah. The actual super. content. Right. The actual <laughs> content needed to be shared, but I would never facilitate anything like that again, um, because the cost to me was great. Um, there was no. It took everything inside of me. It wasn't just intellectual labor. It was real emotional labor um, and holding space for so many white people who are exploring their anti-blackness and their racism is not healthy, <laughs> was not healthy for me. But it, it was nothing that I regret because it's had this incredible uh, impact in the world. You know, from the Instagram challenge, I turned it into a digital workbook that I published for free a few months later. And that was downloaded by almost 100,000 people in six months. Wow. Yeah, and then we, we now have the published book, which is this best-selling book um, that is doing incredible things around the world. But all of that, so all of that is incredible. And, you know, I can see kind of that benefit and I get to experience it. I get to do the workbook. I get to actually, but for you, it doesn't negate kind of that emotional labor and the amount of, of, I think, compassion that you've had to have for people who often don't have that same compassion for you. Right. (laughs) Right. And so I, I think my question is, if, if you're comfortable telling us, you know, aside from kind of that emotional labor, what, what impact did it have on you, you know, delving into that a bit more deeply? And what was the most and least surprising, both about the community you created, kind of this little ad hoc community, and also about yourself as you yeah. went through this journey and process? Um, the... What I can remember from going through that challenge was actually, it was really physical. It had a lot of physical effects on me. Um, I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't fully present in myself and with my family. Um, I felt in all kinds of emotions, anger, grief, trauma, while at the same time, you know, I wanted to honor those feelings, but I also really wanted to honor the space that I had said to people, I'm going to invite you into the space to do this work. I wanted to hold it with integrity while also honoring my own emotions. And that was a tricky balance. Um, You know, that what you just said about compassion um, and love, really, um, it was a real learning journey for me and continues to be actually Um, I found that when I stopped expecting compassion from people who had never been taught how to have compassion for black people, then I could give myself my own compassion 
you know, um, and really just honor myself. And so Mm -hmm. I don't get as angry as I used to get like, why are you not getting it? Right. And I'm doing all of this work and why are you not doing your work? And it was, that was like not healthy for me either because it was like, well, so, so I can't be okay until you know that black lives matter. Right. Um, so I had to really detach myself and how I am in, in, in myself from other people's process as they're w- walking through a journey of unlearning and learning. Yeah. Um, so in terms of surprising things I learned, um, it was surprising having that many people show up for the challenge, to be really honest with you. I expected everyone to run away. And uh, you said this before we, we started our conversation that the process for you has revealed very terrifying things, right? And that was the word that you've used. And a lot of people have used words like, this is the hardest work I've ever done. You know, this is not, yeah. you know, um, and I laugh because it's, uh, that's the nature of the work. It's not the nature of who I am. So it's kind of like, I find it funny because I'm just like this introvert who just likes to read books and just, you know, <laughs> and people now attribute you to, to one of the most right. terrifying and difficult. You know, and I'm like, I, I don't feel like I'm terrifying, but the <laughs> process is terrifying. Oh, not at all. You're incredibly yeah. delightful, but the oh, thank the, you. <laughs> the um the process really was. I, I had been telling Layla before we we started our conversation that working through the book for me on a personal level because I. I am, a, you know, a woman who walks through the world um, visibly Muslim. And, you know, I have lived in, um, you know, in Libya for half my life. And so I, I have all these, you know, I always assumed that I was walking through the world as a person of color, as a person mm. other people had, you know, aggression towards sometimes, animosity towards, definitely, um, you know, feelings of supremacy over and to do this book and see how I myself have those um, as well, as well, at the same time. for sure. Yeah, how I how I have those as well. How I've benefited from a system of white supremacy, um, and how I have how I've failed. I think to realize how embedded in society and in culture it is. I, I was mm. talking with a, a good friend of mine, Jamira Burley, um, who is a anti gun violence um, activist in Philadelphia, mm. and. You know, she said to me once, she said, listen, you can't be not racist in today's world. Yeah. Every television show, every film, every, every book, you know, reminds white people of how much superiority they have. It is meant to create a system of superiority and supremacy and community um, where, where a white person is naturally the default. And so she said, just by that alone, you can't. And I think when I was really kind of thinking about the conversation I wanted to have with you, um, aside from like, hey, Layla, tell me how I can do more and better, which I know is the worst <laughs> question to ask, um, which I know, I follow you on Instagram. You're like, stop asking me about your individual. Right. I'm like, no, Layla, but me, I'm different. But me, I'm special. <laughs> exactly, which is, which is that I'm learning, I have to keep right. doing. But right. it's, you know, one of the questions I always wanted to ask was, you know, you're, you're a leader in anti-racism. You've become this global, rightly so, this global figurehead for somebody to go to, to ask, how do I do this, right? Um, and your book is so rich in this knowledge, but 
you know, in this space, as you hold this kind of title and this responsibility, you know, what have you learned, both from kind of your own personal experiences with anti-racism, yeah. but also your professional ones? Have there been moments, you know, even in this journey where you've been like, wait, you, you want to talk to me about anti-racism, but you're, you're kind of expressing those those ideals or, or have there right. been moments where you've been incredibly surprised and excited? Mm. Okay. So I would say personal. And I'm just thinking of a conversation I had with my mom the other day who is <laughs> spent my, like she, she, you know, she wanted us all to be lawyers, doctors, or engineers, right? Like oh, those are the so professions, surprising. right? You're a culture kid. Let me tell you, your mother is so, that's so, so different, right? Most of them must be artists, maybe right. like, I don't know, fishers. Yeah. <laughs> and she, the funny thing is that she knew from when I was a young age that I was uh, a good writer and she would put me in creative writing, um, like classes and stuff. But then she was like, I noticed that you were getting really good at it and really into it. And it scared me because I wanted you to become these other things that I felt were more stable. You need to be a doctor. Right. So she's like, I pulled you out of those classes. And I'm like, how funny that that's the thing that I, that I returned to. Um, but we've had, she's, she's like my biggest cheerleader and fan, but she also um, is very much like the person from whom I've learned how to be, in connection with God and the power of prayer and the power of intention and all of those things. And so, you know, she, we talk every day and she, she just always wants to know if I'm, if I'm okay, because she sees it. She's like, this is a lot, right? Are you okay? And I said to her, you know, mom, like I am okay because I have, I don't think that I'm the one doing this. I'm the one who received it and, and heard the call and has been obedient to the call and is walking out the call, but I didn't originate it. It didn't come from me. I'm not the one doing it. And so I don't feel that sense of, um, I feel a great sense of humility, essentially. Yeah. You know, I, yes, I feel, you know, in my power and I, you know, I feel empowered to use my voice and all of those things, but I also feel a great sense of humility that this is, this is service this is service. This is not about me. This is about service. Mm -hmm. um, and the more, the kind of more visible I become, the more that message becomes really, really clear to me. And I think if I didn't have that as just like a faith foundation, but also lessons that my mom and my dad have taught me, if I didn't have that and I was getting more and more visible, I think I would crumble mm -hmm. um, if I thought it was all me, right? If I felt like I had to maintain all of this. Um, and so I, I feel very thankful for that, um, for that lesson and that sort of grounding. Um, professionally, I think it's, it's a roller coaster ride doing this work. It is a real roller coaster ride because as a black Muslim woman, you know, like you said earlier, um, you know, there isn't a lot of compassion for black women, um, for black Muslim women. Um, and oftentimes the violence, I would say, or the kind of acting out of oppressive ways of being doesn't just come from people who are different to you, but also comes from people who look like you. Mm -hmm. And that's not fun. <laughs> that's painful to go through. Um, but I, I, again, I think it's, it's, I take it as an opportunity of learning and seeing the ways that 
it's not white supremacy isn't just out there it's 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 everything it's the air that we're breathing it's in me too it's in you too um and and so how can we you know change that how can we heal it within ourselves first um when i when i was when i began asking people to do this great work you know it was really important for me to say how am i examining myself Mm -hmm. you know and i worked with a mentor for two and a half years every single week um doing really deep work on um self-reflection and self-healing and taking responsibility for myself and learning self-care and all of these things but also seeing the ways in which I was the own oppressor to myself in my own mind. And that if I'm doing that to myself, then I'm probably doing it to other people mm-hmm. too. Um, and so that kind of like integrity was really important for me as well, that I'm not going to ask you to dig inside of yourself, turn yourself inside out, pull back all these memories, you know, be terrified, as you yeah. said, and just sit on the mountaintop and, you know, and, and, not, do, and not do the same for myself too. I want to be in the trenches as well. And I think that's the most um, important way to do the work. And what were some of the, you know, as you worked with your mentor, what were some of kind of those, those, uh, those, I don't want to call them strategies, but what were some of the ways where you could exert that compassion on yourself, where you created that sense of care for yourself? I think having the mirror held up to me to see that I didn't have compassion for myself was really powerful. Um, seeing and realizing that the loudest voice of discompassion was my own, that the person who judged me the most was myself, that the person who was actually most abusive to me was me. And not because that, not because that there's something wrong with me, but because we absorb these messages until we take them in. And that voice out there becomes this voice inside. Um, And, and so that was really hard. I, cried a lot <laughs> in those sessions <laughs> and in those weeks um, because, you know, you, you want to have someone to blame and say it's them. You want to, um, you know, point the finger outwards, but, but it's about taking responsibility inwards and saying, and, and saying, if I'm asking, especially white women, I'm asking white women not to treat me in these ways that are harmful. Okay, so they changed their behavior. They now start treating me as a human being, but I'm still dehumanizing myself. I haven't healed. I haven't changed anything. It starts with me to me first. And has that been a lifelong, like, have you noticed that that process is ongoing where you kind of- Absolutely. Back to that? That, that, um, I'm faster at catching myself at it now. You know, and those tendencies of like being a perfectionist and being, you know, judging ourselves, very linked to white supremacy, very linked to patriarchy, you know, very linked to capitalism. Um, And then it becomes this internalized voice. And as black women, we often feel like we have to be strong. We're not allowed to rest. We have to take care of everybody else first. Um, We have to be perfect. And prying, like our fingers loose of those images is like, it's really, it's actually fascinating seeing how we ourselves hold onto the very thing that we're saying we don't want anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and then deciding, and this was really huge for me in my journey was if I don't want to be who they say I am, who do I want to be then? Who am I? Wow. And Audre Lorde has this quote, which really is like one of the basis back there. Um, one of the bases for me of my sort of personal philosophy is I, I have to define myself for myself. 
Because mm-hmm. if I don't, they'll define me for me, right? And I'll be eaten alive by their definition of me. When we are able to define ourselves for ourselves, no matter what noise is going on mm-hmm. outside of you, if you know who you are, then you know who you are and nothing can sway that. And the truth was, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know. I w- and this is part of being a third culture kid as well. We're very good at being chameleons and yeah. fitting in everywhere and adapting ourselves to make other people f- like feel that sense of connection. And, um, and I love being, I love that I'm a third culture kid. I love that I can talk to anyone of any culture, mm-hmm. um, but I also needed to learn how to be myself. Like that essence has to, to be there to regardless. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, my, you know, I, I always, um, it's so interesting you say that about, you know, we, we can only be what we know ourselves to be kind of that, because it seems so simple. It really does. When we're talking about it, we're like, yeah, of course. But I remember, you know, when I first was talking with my husband years ago, he said, you know, you tell yourself a lot of stories about yourself. Right. <laughs> like, cause I'll be like, I don't like to exercise. And he's like, why not? And I'm like, it's just how I am. And he's like, Oh, right. And then like, I like this and I don't like that. And I'm like this. And he was like, you, you really tell yourself a lot of stories. They're not always true about yourself and you don't give yourself a chance to right. be, to be who you are. And so it's so interesting to hear you say that because growing up and, and I know you and I have, have kind of talked about this in the past. There aren't a lot of black Muslim women role models. There's not a lot of women Muslim role models. There's not a lot of, I mean, that, that nexus that you represent is, is so unseen in our communities, um, even in our Muslim communities. And, and there's definitely more work we need to do there. But my first question for you is an absence of an incredible mother who says you can change the world and an absence of a mentor who holds the mirror up to ourselves and an absence of these incredible life-changing moments like you know, holding this space for hundreds of thousands of people on Instagram for 30 days. How do we believe in ourselves? Like, where do we find the courage to say, I'm going to do better and be better? And, and how do we create that compassion for ourselves? Mm. Oh, I can't, I, I really, one of the lessons that I've learned that has been really helpful for me is uh, and this is, it's very related actually to how I talk about me and white supremacy, which is that it's a sprint, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's lifelong work. There's no checkbox that you go through no in your way breaks. Out. There's no easy way out. There's just trial and error and trying, making mistakes, getting feedback, picking yourself up the fl- off of the floor and taking the next step, right? Um, before I was who I kind of am in the world now, you know, I had a career of like trying out a lot of things and doing a lot of things. And 10 years ago, you couldn't have told me I would be having this conversation with you here now. Right. I was like, (laughs) I went to university to study law within the first few weeks. I was like, I don't like this. I don't think this is for me. (laughs) And to make you laugh, my mom, who just, she cracks me up. I was like, mom, this is really dry. And she's like, make it wet. You know, it was, <laughs> I like how there was no, no, there was no room for it. You can change your, you know, you can, no, you make it wet. You know, um, I struggled a lot, <laughs> very African. Um, I struggled a lot with um, anxiety and depression through university, came out of university, didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I remember uh, I was listening to one of uh, your talks actually in the work that you do. And I know that you do work with the UN 
And it's really interesting because I remember in my final year of university, very clear I wasn't going to be a lawyer. Don't want to do this. Don't know what I do want to do, except that I know I want to help people. And the only thing that I could think of at the time was, I know the UN helps people and I want to do something with women. So maybe it will be like the UN women, you know, something around that. So anytime I see someone who's like from that world, I'm like, oh, I wanted to be you when I grew up. <laughs> oh, but you've done way more. I mean, when it, when it comes to helping people, what a full circle kind of moment it's because incredible. you completely transformed the global conversation right. in a way none of us ever have. Oh, thank you. But I, I came out of university depressed, didn't know what I wanted to do, fell into a career in corporate tax of all things. Oh, that's in that. That yeah. was really making it wet for sure. Right. All, really all, wet. <laughs> all the exciting things you could have done. You know, Perfect just tax. like, just like, what am I doing? And um, in trying to find a path, found life coaching and just kept taking steps to, I think I'm going to try this. I think I'm going to try that. Tried out um, life coaching. Um, uh, what is it called? Like corporate um, training. So mm -hmm. teaching soft skills in companies, graphic design, health coaching, uh, marketing, like so many different things, just trying to find like, who am I? Who, what am I supposed to be doing here? Mm -hmm. You know, how do I define myself? And each one of those steps that at the time that you're in it, you feel like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I don't know what I am doing at all, right? That I look back now and I'm like, wow, every single one of those things had to happen the way that they happened. Yeah that I could be here where I am now. Um, and so I, I take that same approach of like, it's about just feeling out what's next. It's about just listening within and then feeling out what's the next thing that's calling you. And maybe the next thing that's calling you, you try it and you thought that it was going to be the thing. And then it was like, no, it's not. But mm -hmm. later you realize, no, I had to do that. because I had to do law so that I could learn how to communicate and, and create a, um, an argument. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why I had to, it, doing law helps me as a writer. Oh, your mom right? is going to be so happy to hear you. <laughs> like, You're welcome. You're welcome. So, so kind of, this is a, a long way of saying, um, life is really messy. Life is really, really messy. And we're, what, what we should be doing, or what I have tried to do is just to reach for what is the, true thing that's calling you next? What's the thing that your heart is gravitating to next? And identifying why that is, right? Because it's that thing inside that says, I want to do this because it, it speaks to this part of me that wants to express itself in this way. Um, and that includes, like I said, making mistakes and mm -hmm. learning from them. And then give a, really looking at when I'm not able to give myself compassion, why is that? Mm -hmm. whose voice is that whose story is that where did I get is that my story or is it the story I think I'm supposed to believe about myself um wow. yeah just questioning everything and just allowing your path to be what it is so that is as, as someone in the midst of I think my third or fourth quarter life crisis <laughs> um it's your annual quarter life my annual, my, my joke is like, which number are we on now? 62? I'm like, don't worry about it. Okay. Um, but it's, it sounds, you know, as I, as I'm listening to you, it sounds so, I think, 
easy probably isn't the right word, but it's the word that's coming to mind. This idea of just being pulled by what you love most, pulled by yeah. what you what you are what you have most purpose in, or what speaks to that part of you that that is, you know, in service of others. My my parents always say, you know, the greatest form of worship is work. It's, it's not, you know, sitting in prayer. I love your parents. <laughs> I had, I had that realization sitting at my corporate tax job. That's the realization that I, I literally, ha- I was like, I sit here eight hours a day, five days a week. Like if this isn't worship, I don't know what it is. And I don't know what I'm worshiping, but this isn't what I want to be worshiping. <laughs> but I'm putting it out there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I completely, I, I do see, uh, our work as a form of vibadav, as a mm-hmm. form of worship. Yeah, so we have to be intentional about it. And, and I think your, your journey is a perfect example of that. But I do have to ask, as someone, who, as someone who is maneuvering the world with a recognition that that, that oftentimes isn't something a lot of people understand mm-hmm. um, or appreciate, what has been kind of the greatest challenge for you in this faith journey, in this spiritual journey, in in marrying that to this incredibly powerful, but, but even as you mentioned, um, oftentimes incredibly difficult and, yeah. and particularly on a personal level work. How, how do you marry those two? Surrender. Surrender for me is, uh, like surrendering that I'm supposed to know how it's all supposed to go, that I'm supposed to micromanage every step of it right? That I'm supposed to have all the answers always. The type A in me. Just right, like, just right. That I have to never feel those challenging emotions or feel like I don't know what I'm doing or feel self-doubt, right? Mm-hmm. Just surrendering and just saying, I don't, I don't know. All I know is that I just keep being called back to this. All I know is that my existence here on earth isn't an accident. Yeah. That I'm here for a reason. Like if we just think about like how human beings, when we create something, we don't just create it to be functional. We create it to be beautiful too. And that's us too, right? And so every single part of us is so uniquely made, including our passions, our talents, the things that excite us, even our neuroses, right? All parts of it are intentional and purposeful. Mm -hmm. And so um, surrendering and, and, and when I say surrender, it's surrendering both to the greater power, but also surrendering to my own humanity. Like becoming human, which is the work of liberation, is for me has been like, like that release, right? Of type A leaving the building. Yeah. <laughs> like I can unclench my jaw, right? Roll your shoulders back. Roll my shoulders back. I can take a deeper breath, right? Uh, that being human means not being perfect. Being human means being all of the emotions, all of the feelings, all at the same time in ways that are not um, what a machine would be, are mm-hmm. not what a, what, a, what a maths equation would be, but instead what being human is. And that has been freeing for me, but it has also, I really think, helped me in walking up my work as I invite people into mm-hmm. the work. Mm-hmm. that I'm inviting human beings in, recognizing myself as a human being and uh, them as human beings. Um, it makes it easier on both of us, I think. So how, just a super simple question, how do we surrender? Mm-hmm. 
How, how do we, we don't know how do we we don't know how you're saying that and i'm hearing you and i'm like okay i need to do this and then I'm, and then i'm like but how Leila? just but tell how? me how yeah, i'll yeah, do yeah. it oh just give know, me a checkbox list right i i think i think we think it's we think it's bigger than it has like it has to be this big like come to jesus moment right like it has to be like this dramatic movie moment um, for me, surrendering has often looked like, let me just get offline for a moment. Yeah. Like, let me just check out. Let me just cancel all the appointments on my calendar, right? Let me just stop juggling all of these different bits and pieces because what I really need right now is A, rest, mm -hmm. and B, um, to listen within, to listen to God. My, 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 I, was, I was speaking with my dad the other day. And my mom asked him, how is she? And, and he said, she's listening to God. Because <laughs> that's what I told him. And they thought it was so funny. But I was like, literally, that's what I'm doing. Um, is just sitting and listening to God. I am going to gonna start using that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's like our minds are working so fast and trying to be all the things all the time for all the people. And I know for somebody like you and somebody like me who... We want our lives to have meaning. We want everything that we're doing to be in service. We want to really, you know, help people and to change the world. It, it's like slowing down and stopping feels counterintuitive because it feels like you're wasting time or being yeah. selfish. And actually, the best service that I can give to anyone is the kind of service I give when I'm full instead of when I'm en empty. And each one of us fills ourselves up in different ways. For me, I fill my, the things I need to fill myself up are very simple. I need books. I need, <laughs> I need time alone. I need time with my family. I need things that make me laugh. And I need things that inspire me. That's what I need. And if I can just take some time away and give myself those things, I return a much better person and can give service in a much better way. And so it's up to us to figure out for ourselves, like what fills me up that has nothing to do with anybody else or it has some like, yes, it serves me, but it also serves another. No, what just serves you, right? <laughs> what um, just takes care of you and just figure out what those maybe five things are and do those. And on the list of things that, because as you're, you know, saying that I'm thinking of the things that fill me up, which are not very glamorous or. No, they never filling. are. That's the thing. They aren't. <laughs> the number one thing kind of, I'll give you a quick example. I watch HGTV, those home, home, home makeover shows. Okay. When I'm working and everybody yeah. thinks it's the weirdest thing. Cause I don't actually, I'm not very, you know, domestic and I'm not very right. home improvement-y. I'm none of those things, but seeing the instant gratification of someone yeah. taking a house from like nothing to super beautiful for whatever reason is amazing to me. I sit there, I reply right. to emails and I'm like, Ooh, I love that marble. <laughs> I could, you know, I could care less, but it's incredible to see and to see yeah. these people have that. It, it feeds that kind of immediate gratification part of my brain. And, and I think now years in, I've started explaining to people like, no, this is good for me. I need this. Yeah. I need this to just kind of understand and kind of get through all the, the more difficult parts of the day. I need that mundane, you know, yes. that mundane. Yeah, balance, right. What is that thing for you? I would say for me, mm, it, like I said, it can be different things. I, but there, there has to be a feeling of, um, I feel inspired. Inspired in some way. Um, 
watching, so I've been watching on, um, what is it called? Like uh, Apple TV, they have a series called Dear dot, dot, dot. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. seen it. Like Dear Oprah or Dear yeah. Misty Copeland. And um, they read letters from people who've been inspired by them. Like stuff like that. I just sit there and I'm like, teary-eyed. <laughs> <laughs> but things, things of that nature um, are what fill me up. Podcast interviews, you know, just where I'm seeing somebody who's like really walking their path, mm -hmm. you know, and um, learning their lessons and going through the ups and downs. That's why I love podcasting. Um, anything that inspires me in that kind of a way uh, is just very filling to me because I yeah. think that's my purpose. It, it just resonates in such a way that I'm like, that's, I recognize myself in that. I feel mm -hmm. like that's I my myself. star. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I have, one of kind of the more difficult parts of self-learning and self-compassion is identifying and recognizing the fears that we do have. And I wonder what, what are you still kind of not necessarily scared, but what do you fear overcoming? What, what do you, what do you know is ahead that will take mm. the work that will take the energy that you're like, Oh, I'm, I'm not ready for that mountain yet. <laughs> Um, hmm. I think, I think what it is, is very linked to mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, because I know my history with depression and anxiety, and I know that as and this is, I think so many people who are deeply reflective and like deeply inward, um, can come up with these very profound things, but kind of get into our own spirals as well. Yeah. Um, I think one of the fears that I have, or one of the things that I'm aware is constantly there is not to lose myself back in there, that, yeah. uh, in that place. It's not, it's not as big as a fear as it used to be, I think, because give it, like everything we've talked about, the surrender, the knowing how to take care of myself and all of those things, have given me um, a better understanding of what that, that way of being is about. Um, but yeah, I would say it's, I think it's hard being in the public eye mm -hmm. and people just wanting you to be a certain way all the time. And you're a human being who, yes, may be um, confident, may have a voice, may be able to say all of these things, but still very much you know, have your own internal turmoil or mm -hmm. um, feelings. Uh, that's something that's always there. I think I've learned to, I've learned that I have to live with it, that I won't be free of it. Mm -hmm. And that stop, it's like trying to stop running away from it is, is healthy. <laughs> like, let it be there. <laughs> the only way, the only, the only way, way is to go through it. The only way to go through it is to go and to be with it and to allow it to be a part of who you are in the same way that inspiration is a part of who I am. Um, anxiety is also a part of who I am. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's there because like you said, right, it's like what's coming next. I know that I'm writing this young readers edition and I know that I have so much even more inside of to me offer. Mm -hmm. to offer to the world. And I just don't want to lose my connection with myself because more people feel like they ha they own me. 
they have a piece of you. Yeah. 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 They have a right to you or, or I, I, yes. Once pretty recently, I noticed on Instagram when you, when you kind of commented, I'm not here to answer all your questions. I'm not here no. to give comments about the issues you care about. Right. I'm, I'm here to be in service of the work and I, in service of myself as I do this work as I, right. as, and I, I thought that was incredible because because so many people, because they bought your book or because they were following you, felt like they were entitled to your time and to your energy right. and to your right. experience and your expertise in a way that's, I think, very unique, you know, in, yeah. in the world where we, where we look at people who are, you know, educators and, and they provide the service and say, okay, well, if you want me to learn, you need to teach me. Right. Which is very much linked to the social media world that we live in because, you know, people have always written the kinds of books that I, that I wrote. Um, but they didn't have access to them in that way. It was like, yeah. buy the book. You could write them a letter, right? <laughs> or you could go to the Get talk. Six years right. <laughs> <laughs> you could go to the talk that they were at and maybe get a question answered, but you couldn't just, you know, send them a DM or send them a comment and ask for um, like one-on-one -on -one personal coaching on yeah. a particular issue that you have. Um, my mom, uh, who just, you know, she, she doesn't use social media very much, but, you know, just recently started following me. Is like, you know, you're very tough on people. <laughs> like, you should answer. Why do you keep telling people you're not going to answer their questions? I'm like, mom, I have been doing this for a few years now. I have to prioritize myself. I cannot prioritize anyone else. Otherwise, I can't do the work. I will yeah. be destroyed. Um, this thing called white supremacy, these systems of oppression are very real. Mm -hmm. And part of fighting them and dismantling them is saying my, my health and wellness comes first. Exactly. Yeah. Is putting yourself first. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I, I think it's so encouraging um, to actually see the way in which you communicate that because I think it makes people realize, and, and it's a conversation that we've been having in some of the places that I, that I work in and advise in, people can see those, those outright acts of racism. They can mm -hmm. see when you, you know, verbally or physically insult somebody. Yeah. They, they cannot see how it permeates their environment and it permeates the way that they think and talk to other people in a very casual way, right? Like, oh yeah. no, you're, you're here to teach me. Oh, right, your job right. is to make my life easier. Right. Those, those which things is just the replicating of supremacy, which is that we're not two human beings who get to mutually respect each other and both have our dignity. No, you exist as a thing to me, for me to consume. Yeah. As, and right? I'm the central being. Right. I'm, right. I'm the one who, who right. matters and you're I, the I, one who's othered. Right. I'm this, I'm the, what do you call the subject and you're the object. Yeah. Right. And it's like, that is just, so when I say no, you're also learning about anti-racism. Yeah. Yeah. And learning that you, that we exist in a world with equal dignity and equal rights. That's right. I think it's incredible to see because, you know, as, as young women, um, we're also, we're taught like, okay, you know, there's a time when you're quiet. There's a time yeah. when you defer, change the way you say it. Maybe people right. will, you know, change your tone. Don't, right. don't give so many opinions. And we're, we're taught this so much. And then you boil it down to, you know, that third culture learning and, yeah. you know, bless our families, but it's definitely something that is, that is rampant. It, this yeah. idea that, that there is a, a, almost a deference that we pay. Yeah. Um, yeah. for being women, particularly outspoken or opinionated women. So to see somebody else do that with so much self-assurance and say, no, 
my job is not to, you know, act in service of you individually as a person on your personal journey. It is to provide this for, for a collective community. Um, it's incredible. It's, it's really well, incredible. Uh, what, what I will say about that is that it took me work to get there. <laughs> I want to make that really clear because one of my biggest fears was always being called a bitch. Yeah. And saying no is, is, you know, amount. Yeah. It's right. Bitchy behavior, right. Yeah, that invitation. me affirming myself is somehow an affront to everyone else. Um, and so learning how to say no without even um, explanations or mm -hmm. um, justifications or softening it, you know, just it's no, you know, um, went against my very nature, nature and kind of mindset and consciousness. And I had to practice it again and again and again, yeah. um, unlearn inferiority. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. a lifelong process. Because mm -hmm. I was comparing the way I word emails and the way some of my brothers and my husband word their emails. And I'd be like, no, I can't do that because, you know, I have a adopt my daughter's doctor appointment and right. then I have to do this and, and da, 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 da. And, you know, I have four other meetings that day. And like it was, right. I was literally writing the person an essay and my yeah. husband's email was nope. And I was like, right. oh. and I was like, did you not tell them why? And he's like, well, I say, I don't want to. And I was like, well, right. We have right. to, we're allowed to do this. So it's yeah. been such an unlearning in that way. I think, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about how we kind of create compassion for ourselves. And you've talked about this journey and, and the mentorship and um, really the, the process that it's been, for lack of a better word. Um, and what, what do you think are some of the steps that we can all take to unlock that, you know, better version of ourselves or that... Mm that that version that is prepared to climb those mountains that is prepared mm. to say listen my anxiety is as much a part of me as my inspiration is my mm. you know how do we unlock that in ourselves i i'm gonna reference audrey lord again because her writings just really helped me with that and particularly her essay or well, her speech which is in essay form um called the transformation of silence into language and action which came about after she had been um she, they found a lump and it was being tested and it was in the space between taking the test and getting the results to see whether it was benign or, or, or malignant um, that she, for the first time, was really confronted with like uh, her own mortality. I could have a disease which might kill me and what has my life been? And um, she said, you know, my silence doesn't protect me right? My silence will not protect me. Your silence will not protect you. If I get to the end of my life and all of these things I swallowed inside of me, I didn't say them. I didn't say what I wanted to say. I was scared to use my courage. I got to the end of my life and what has my life been? Did it protect me? Did my silence protect me? It did not. So I'm going to speak regardless of what the consequences are. And that's an essay I return to a lot, um, especially in times when I'm scared or when I feel like when I feel like in the past, when I felt like I don't want to answer this call, yeah. when I've tried to, and I've tried to refuse this call a number of times, right? I did, I did the challenge. It's enough. I did the workbook. Yeah. It's enough. I don't need to do the next step. Right. Um, but it comes back, but you're still a black Muslim woman in the world. So will it protect you not using your voice? Will you not experience racism by being quiet? Right? It doesn't protect me. So I might as well use my voice, especially when I know communication is one of 
my God-given gifts. Yeah, that's so um, powerful. So that's one of the things she says. And one of the other things she says is about like, all of us have work that we're supposed to do. So are you doing your work? Right. And when we ask ourselves that question to get really honest with ourselves, like, is this the work I'm supposed to be doing? I remember asking myself that question. Um, when was it? 2013. And I was at, this was the final job that I ever had. And, uh, I was like, if I don't, if I don't like do the work that I'm supposed to be doing, this is going to be my work. This is going to be my life for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I'm going to be miserable. And so I had to leave that job and I never returned to working for anyone else ever since. And thank God, because you know, <laughs> I finally got to do my actual work, right? Exactly. Um, right. And so each one of us is given something that we're supposed to do and it's for us to listen and figure out what that thing is and just to do that, right? Like not compare it to anyone else's work or how they're doing it, or the, or the load that Which they're Which is counting. so difficult today, right? You see everyone else's, like you see everyone else's best day all the time. And you don't realize, yeah. you know, there was this quote I read the other day, don't be jealous of people when you see what they have in their winning season, because you don't know what they lost in their losing season. And I think you don't, and you don't know, point. you also don't know what they're sacrificing in their winning season. Exactly. So, you know, I don't, yeah, I mean, we, I, I'm definitely someone like a lot of people who early on was like really comparing myself to other people. But I think as you do your work and you, and you have to pay those, the blood, sweat and tears for your work, why would I want to pay blood, sweat and tears for work that isn't even mine? It's for exactly. someone else to do, exactly. right? <laughs> like I got enough on my plate. On my own, right? <laughs> you're, you're, um, comment about Audre Lorde's essay, I think is incredible as we're kind of wrestling with this, you know, model minority complex, this idea that, yeah. you know, if we're just quiet and, and, and this is, you know, something that, that happens in, in, I think every minority community, if we're quiet, if we do the work, if we become the doctors and the lawyers and the engineers, mm -hmm. if we contribute to society, if we, you know, if, if we pay our taxes, if we mow our lawns, then, then no one is going to come after us. Right. You know, they're going to see us like they see themselves. And I think there's been an awakening for sure um, that that's not the case, that you can no. pay as many taxes as you want. You can be the best doctor. Um, but when push comes to shove, you are not and do not look like them. And right. I think my, my question here is with all of this recent learning or unlearning, with these recent protests, with, with all of this activity and engagement and people speaking up, people saying we won't be silent anymore. Do you, do you think this marks a turning point? Do you think, are you hopeful? Are you optimistic or? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that, that I would use the word turning point um, because I think we, we don't know until we look back. So, um, so that's not the word that I would use. I definitely think that this is a, a shaping moment that yeah has the potential to go in any which way direction and that really depends on the people and it really depends on the people who have privilege because the people who have racial privilege because mm -hmm. the people who because the people who don't have been in the work will continue to be in the work regardless mm -hmm. but it's really on those who have racial privilege who have skin privilege are they 
doing what they can be doing to shape this moment into what we want it to be, which is working towards a world where everybody has the freedom to live in the fullness of their, you know, full humanity. Um, so that's, that's more how I would, I, I would, I would uh, frame it because I think every moment is a shaping moment. Yeah. Um, but if we don't seize it with intentionality and move forward with it with intentionality, it becomes just symbolic. It becomes something that we can look back on and say, Hey, that happened. Mm-hmm. Right. And maybe some things changed in the aftermath of it, but for the most part, a lot is the same. I've been reflecting a lot um, on the death of um, Rep. John Lewis and the incredible life he led from the age of 17 when he started activism, right? And lived his entire life. Like we literally are the beneficiaries of his his life, of his, right? Of his, of his actions, of his belief, of of his thoughts about his decisions, everything. Um, And I know that we are the beneficiaries of that. And at the same time, it's hard knowing he still died and the world is still struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I take it as, yes, in, I'm incredibly inspired by him as, as so many people are, but I also take it as we have to pick up the, the baton. We have to and, continue and to do the work. We have to continue the work and not just say, you know, he, he had many pivotal moments in his um, lifetime, right? Um, and risked far more than many of us are risking. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, and, and worked alongside those who had to pay the ultimate price of their lives. Um, but still, we live in a world where when you say Black Lives Matter, you get the retort back, White Lives Matter. So... <laughs> So, so yeah, there's still so much work to do, which I think for some people is like, oh, you know, are we still in it? You know? But it's like, oftentimes I feel like those questions come from people who have skin privilege, who've just yeah. been in it, in the work for a moment and are looking for grasping for hope, grasping yeah. for optimism, grasping for something that can, you know, just make them feel a bit better. And I, and I really say like, look for it within. Mm-hmm. Let your right actions there. be, yeah, let, let your actions be the source of hope. That's incredible. So you have, you know, speaking of um, Rep. John Lewis and Audre Lorde, and you have a podcast called Good Ancestor. Mm-hmm. And you, so much of your work and so much of, you know, what you speak about, even in this interview has been about how do we shape the future? How do we, how do we leave something behind for others? How do we do the work? Right. And, um, and I think it's such a difficult question because so much of of it is about, you know, how do we shape our own legacies to be compassionate and empowering? How do we create a bigger table for, you know, others? How do we, how do we create change? Uh, and, and how do we ourselves be good ancestors? What does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah, I love that you, because I know the, the name of the podcast. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what it means to be at the table. And you know, there's always conversations around, do we want to be included in that table? Do we want to create our own tables? Um, and I, I've really been sitting with that. And I think just as you were talking, what came to me was, 
I want each of us to have our own tables mm-hmm. and for them to be tables where we get to, you know, define who we are for ourselves, but also be in community with people who also have their own tables and all tables get access to all resources um, so that not some tables are elevated higher than other tables, depending on, depending on different identities and experiences. Um, because, you know, and sorry, I will say this and the table isn't given to, to us by anybody. It is our God given right. It is my God given right to use my voice. Yeah. Right. It is your God given right to be heard. Um, and so that's kind of the way that I think about it. And so if I think about like good ancestorship and what that means to me, I think it's about recognizing that I do have a table. It has, I've had it, it's my birthright and I get to choose how I use it, what I do at that table, how I show up at that table for myself and for other people. Um, that I recognize that my table matters as much as everybody else's um, and that I, while sitting at my table and making the decisions that I make, choosing the behaviors that I, that I choose, also impact every other table yeah. through those actions. So it's like that, that uh, sort of moving between me as an individual and me as part of a, a global community and that I'm both at the same time. That's incredible. It's, you know, I, I, I've had this internal debate for over 10 years. Um, since I started my work, I was like, do I want to flip the table? Am I at the table? Do I carry right. the table? Should I pull the table? Do I bring my right. chair? Um, and what I've learned is, is so like everything you said reflects so strongly what that internal dialogue has been and that I've always had a table, every, all of yeah. us, have. but it's also about who we invite to the table. Yeah. to our own table, to, to teach us, to yeah. um, work with us, to support us, to guide us, to mentor us, to challenge us. Right. Yeah. And, and that in that table that we build oftentimes, you know, and I, and I even have this challenge myself, we think to what society tells us are the people who can teach and guide and mentor and challenge. And we yeah. very rarely, I think, have difficult conversations about who's not at that table, That's right. even our That's own. Right. Um, and who we give privilege to even at our own tables. Yeah. Cause, cause it's, it, it's I, I think it's, it'll be unsurprising too, that it's very rarely us. Um, yeah. So, so it's been an exercise in, I think, reflecting on what I view leadership as. Mm. Um, and even as I was sending out kind of like, Oh, who I'm excited to have on the podcast. You know, everyone was like, well, where are all the CEOs and the heads of state and the, (laughs) that's one definition of leadership, right? That's one definition, but leadership is so nuanced and that local leadership, that ability to, to create movements, to mobilize, to accelerate, to, to ask people the most difficult questions about themselves and have them show up every day for 28 days. That is leadership. Mm. That Mm. is leadership. And our, our world and our society, unfortunately, we don't view leadership the same if you don't have, you know, doctor in front of your name, or if you're not a CEO, or if you're not a white male. And, and I, and I think what we need to do, or what I hope to do in my lifetime is redefine what the table looks like so that every young woman, every young Muslim woman, every Muslim woman of color, every woman of color, every, every person can grow up knowing inherently that they have a table. 
And then they get to choose, you know, where they want to sit, how they want to use their voice, but that they have a right to, um, and that it doesn't take, you know, 20 or 30 years of trial and error, um, for us to realize that our, our experiences matter. Yeah. Because, you know, we can have, we can feel personally empowered in our own just personal self and not have access to systemic or institutional power, which is the world that we live in. Yeah. Right. And, and so yes, I want my own table, but yes, I want, I want to be at the table where decisions are being made about how people who look like me are being treated um, and, and how I'm being treated. Um, And I think that's, that's really important as well. But like you said, you know, it's, it's not about, um, I think it's even about redefining, like you said, what that table looks like, because that table is an oppressive table. Exactly. So I don't want, right. <laughs> you know, no, that we challenge it. We have to, dismantle <laughs> yeah. it. We have to rebuild it. Right. Right. But I, but I don't want like, for me, realizing that I had power mm-hmm. and, I, and I, I know you've spoken about this as well. took so long. Yeah. And I think about what the greatest disadvantages of, of xenophobia and of racism. And, you know, aside from the fact that we're never really allowed to show our full range of emotions yeah. um, because we'd be, you know, called difficult or angry or right beyond that when i look at the way those raised with privilege and i include myself here but but you know particularly kind of young men um get to maneuver themselves in the world with the assumption the the assumption that they are allowed at the table they're invited to the table right um i compare that to growing up and thinking that that was just a completely closed off room Right. And so my, right. I think one thing that I'm so determined to do, and I know so many other incredible women like yourself um, are determined to do is, is make it clear to young women that you don't need to ask permission to show up. Yeah. You're supposed yeah. to, you know what I mean? You show, up, yeah. show up any way you want to. You don't have to show yeah. up if you are a Muslim woman and only talk about Islam. You don't yeah. have to show up if you're a woman. Right. And only talk about racism. You can right. talk about fashion. You can talk about, you yeah. know, HGTV. You can talk about whatever you want. But what I want to leave my daughter with and other young women with is that you, you have the God-given right to show up and to be right. your entire self, emotions and everything. And, yeah. and you have a right to be at that table to make those decisions as well. I think being fully human is, is one of our greatest gifts to ourselves first mm-hmm. um, and then to the rest of our communities and to the rest of humanity is giving ourselves permission to be fully human in a world that says you're only human up to a certain point, depending on your, the, the privileges that you hold yeah. in this Based system. Based on how I see you. And based on how I see you, right? And so being fully human in a world that says you are lesser than human is one of the hardest things. It's the easiest thing to say mm-hmm. is the hardest thing to do. Um, but it's the best thing to do for yourself and for other people. And, you know, I, when I talked earlier about what I love, what I get refilled and, and nourished with is inspiration. And it's from people who defy the messages around them that says you can only be the X, Y, Z and mm-hmm. say, actually, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try that. And, um, and, and, and sort of rewrite the narrative. Like I'm thinking of behind, right behind me here is um, Octavia Butler, who was an incredible uh, author, um, but black woman in the field of science fiction, yeah. who at that time, you know, they, people like her were not really present in that space, right? Those are incredible, though. 
um, just like life changing. Her books yeah. have been life changing for me. And she just, you know, well, not just, she was herself despite messages from all around saying, you can't be this, you shouldn't be that, you shouldn't be here. And she was there. And yeah. it's incredible to me that in the wake of the protests that have been going on, you know, one of the books that has been selling so well is one of her books, many, yeah. many, many years after her death, right? That she's still this good ancestor that we are referencing and referring to and getting wisdom from um, because of the ways that she showed up in her art, which mm -hmm. to me is directly linked to how she must have been showing up in her life. Yeah. It was, it's interesting you say that um, years ago, I heard from, um, we were sitting in a conversation, Mandela said, sometimes I show up to show up. Yeah. And I love it. I, love I that. use it all the time. I'm like, I'm, ju I'm just showing up to show up. Yes. I have access to this space. So sometimes I show up just to show up. And, I, and to right. me, it meant like I show up to remind people that I yeah. exist, that I am there, that I'm holding them accountable, that I am part of the conversation. That I, but the way he said it was so casual. Sometimes I show up to show up. Yeah, um, I love yeah, it. Me too. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, Leda, it's been, it's been such an incredible honor to get some of your time. Um, I know how incredibly busy you are. Um, I know there are millions of people who are reading your work, who are doing your work, and who are waking up to a very different understanding and reality of themselves, of white mm. supremacy, of racism, um, and and to have, you know, what I'm sure many people in 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 history, you know, based on your your comments, a, a black Muslim woman be the image of this and be the leader on this is incredible. It's really mind blowing to me. I have to tell you, like, it's very, it's very mind blowing to me, especially knowing how, like how I saw myself growing up being the only and feeling like my job was to just fade into the background so that people didn't notice that I was a black Muslim girl, um, to be able to be fully myself and fully hold this conversation in, in, in a way that I feel needs to be had is it's incredible. just really mind blowing to me. And I feel very, very grateful. Oh, it's incredible. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to you, but I'm also grateful to the generations of young women. Um, and I, I include, I have a, a newborn, a six month old. So I talk about her an incessant amount um, because it's a very new reality for me. And, and yeah. if you check out my phone, I have like 5,000 photos of her <laughs> the exact same face with like, <laughs> one difference and people are like, you know, this is excessive. And I'm like, shh, shh don't talk about this. This is, you know, this is just reality now. Um, yeah. but, but it's made me look at the world and this is going to sound so cliche in a different way in terms of where am I dedicating my time? What role models does she have? What, what examples of courage and of power and of compassion and of faith does she have? Yeah. And I'm yeah. so grateful that I'll, I'll be able to point to you and say, you know what, this mm. is, this is a role model. This is someone we can look to and say, this is a good ancestor. Oh, um, well, I feel this, I feel the same about you. I want to say that I feel the same about you. My daughter's 10. And as she goes through each next stage of growth and sort of, um, I witness her witnessing herself. Um, I feel very grateful that, sh that she gets to see so many incredible Muslim women um, who all look different, who all do different things, um, but do it, do it being uniquely them and that it's a reminder to her, you can be yourself and have your faith and be fully yourself. Um, you can be all and, the things. 
all the things. So yeah, <laughs> mutual appreciation for sure. Oh yeah, no, this is definitely in the mutual appreciation society. Forget <laughs> about it. Um, my last question for you is, and I'm not going to ask you about what we need to do to hold ourselves accountable. I'm not going to, I'm going to just tell everybody, go buy the book, do the work. It's all in there. Um, but my last question for you is, you know, when you are at the table, what is one thing you bring? It can be a message, it can be mm. a favorite book, it can be a person, but what is one thing you bring that makes you stronger, more effective, more compassionate, more powerful? What is one thing that makes you more, more Leila? Oh, this is so good. I don't know, because I want to bring all the things, all you can the bring books. more than one thing. Listen, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I will write down every book you mentioned being like, um, I would say so, so, so that I don't have to name every book. I I, want to, can I bring two, I'm going to bring like one thing that's external and one thing that's kind of more uh, intangible. Um, I think external, it would be the writings and thought leadership of, of black people from around the world. Um, who, you know, I was looking at a map yesterday. I, I decided to Google a map to see where in the world um, has experienced European colonization. And um, it's pretty much the entire globe with a few exceptions, very rare exceptions. Um, and so people from around the world have been, uh, have been under the oppression of, uh, white supremacy and have also um, had to find creative and courageous ways to fight against it and to um, hold on to their own humanity while creating like pathways and uh, yeah, pathways for people to find their own liberation. Mm -hmm. So literature from, you know, black people, indigenous people, people of color, around the world who have been doing this work, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, um, is what I would, be heaps of those kinds of books to the table because each one has a different thing to teach us. And we begin to see the interconnections of everything. Um, but the kind of intangible thing would be, would be my faith. Um, because I, I, it's, again, it's my anchor. Like I'm a human being, I have my emotions. I feel tired, I feel upset, I feel triggered. I feel, I feel all of those things, right? And it has to be something that's bigger than me to remind me how I wanna hold myself in the world. And for me, Islam and my faith is, uh, is a lot of that blueprint for me. And it's shown up for me in how, my, how I see my parents have shown mm -hmm. up in the world as incredible parents, but also as, as people who themselves do, um, do work around you know, supporting orphans and supporting yeah. um, people who need you know, financial support. Um, in ways where it's not about what other people say about them, but about how much more can they give, how much more can they do, um, and having that so sense. Many of those yeah, yes, and having that sense of integrity. Um, so that that's the intangible thing that I would bring to the table because it reminds me of the standards that I hold myself to. That is incredible. It really is. I think I'm I'm not sure um, what I expected to hear from that answer. I do think faith was at the I top think books of the was, list. I think books was probably predictable. Books, books, <laughs> books, but you know, I I think it's so difficult for people to understand at times the power faith has. Yes. In 
in driving and directing at times and supporting and uplifting in our weakest moments, a lot of our work. And I'm so grateful every time I hear it more normalized, people talking about it, saying, yeah, faith is an, an, an inherent part of who I am, not yeah. just in practice. It's not just something I talk no. about, how I see myself and That's how I see right. the world and how I believe the world sees me, you know, that we have this very famous um, saying in Islam that that the good you see in me is a reflection of what God has shown you. And I think that's so beautiful. Yeah. Because, you know, it, it removes all of that, what you were talking about earlier. It gives you only humility. It removes all of the ego. This is yeah. not about me. This is about no. what God has chosen to highlight in me and, right. and right. Has, has chosen to, to, to utilize in me to create. That's right. World. And I that's think right. yeah. the reflection that God has shown of you is mashallah. For, for a better way of saying it, it is. Alhamdulillah. Thank it's you. Inspiring, it's exciting. It's motivating. It is terrifying. I'll be honest. Oh, yeah. It is. Yeah. I, yeah. I got to do so much work. Um, but I think that is the best kind of role model. The one that makes you realize how, how much more you need to do to be yeah. a, a better, to be a good ancestor mm. um, and to truly show up at the table uh, and, and be compassionate and effective and, um, powerful for your community, for yourself, for, for the collective, uh, global community. So I first and foremost want to thank you for taking the time, uh, the emotional energy, the labor, um, to have been doing this work, um, which, which has okay. often been thankless for years. Um, and then, and then more importantly than that for showing up today. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you. And in that same spirit, I want to extend my thank you to you and your, um, yeah, just your, you're a great role model for me and for so many Muslim women. Um, and, and the way that you show up is, is so beautiful and powerful while being just your unique self. <laughs> um, and, and at the same time, I also really want to extend, I really want to acknowledge the work of, of people who, are on the front lines mm -hmm. and whose lives and whose children's lives are impacted by this system of oppression and these different systems of oppression in ways where, you know, there isn't safety and there isn't yeah. ease and there isn't peace and there isn't joy. Um, because again, like talking about being at the table and who isn't there and who is there, you know, there's a lot of privilege that I hold. Visibility is a privilege. Yeah. Where living where I live is a privilege, right? Having that sort of physical distance is a privilege. Um, and, and there are just so many people who are, who are at the table, who are risking so much and who are not seen and not appreciated. Um, and I just want to thank them. Oh, wholeheartedly. Thank you for that. So where can our listeners first give us marching orders? What are our next steps? <laughs> and where can our listeners find you? Where can they follow your work? Where can they, where can they ask you questions? <laughs> Very few places. But give us, give us some marching orders. Where can our listeners okay. find you? So I would say broad marching orders, especially for people who have white privilege is to take on the responsibility of curating your anti-racist education and seeing it as a lifelong journey really reading as many books, listening to as many podcasts, watching as many videos, you know, reading as many studies as you can from a variety of different um, 
educators um, who teach in different ways. It's important to learn from different mm -hmm. kinds of teachers. For myself, what I contribute to that, you know, body of work is a book called Me and White Supremacy, um, which you can find at meandwhitesupremacybook.com. You can find it all places where books are sold. Um, and it yeah, it's in. like a New York Times. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, hardcover, uh, ebook, uh, as well as um, audiobook. Um, you can find the Good Ancestor podcast everywhere where podcasts are listened to, including on YouTube. And uh, what else? I have a couple of classes. Um, if you go to goodancestoracademy.com, I have a couple of mini master classes there on one on white feminism, one on parenting and white supremacy, um, another one on how to show up in spaces that are only for black indigenous people of color when you're not one, how to show up in that wow. space respectfully mm -hmm. without doing harm. And uh, I'm sure there'll be more master classes to come in the future. Um, currently working on the Young Readers edition of Me and White Supremacy, and I'm looking forward to sharing that when it's, when it's ready. And yeah, just, you know, follow me on Instagram because it's the only social media platform that I use and that I have the energy for. Um, and that's Layla F. Saad. I'm so excited. And you can also support Layla's podcast at Patreon um, and, and honestly amplify the work. Um, I, I've, I've spoken to so many people who have been doing the book, who are doing the work and um, who are talking about it, you know, with friends and family. And I think it's, it's such an incredible um, conversation to be having. And I'm, I'm really grateful you've created that platform and that blueprint um, for all of us. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited for everything to come. I'm going to go and sign up for some of the classes. <laughs> um, go easy on me. Um, but, but I'm, I'm genuinely very grateful for uh, who you are, how you show up in the world. Um, and, and I, I appreciate so much the energy that you've taken to take us all on this journey with you. Thanks, Donna. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you so much, David. Amplify our important message by leaving a review or subscribing. Collaborate with us to encourage more people to shout for change. And be on the lookout. We have more episodes coming soon, and I can't wait to share them with you. From At The Table, I'm Dr. Lambert. Thank you for joining us.